Uh, but we are going to get into the Word today. You know, we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you've been enjoying this as much as I have. Uh, I feel like this is one of those series that as I'm teaching it, it's also forming and shaping my heart and my life. Uh, have, you, have you been finding that? Uh, I, I know that I feel like every week as I'm preparing these sermons, uh, there's something challenging, and we're actually landing this week on a particularly challenging text. And so I actually want to say, uh, before we get into this, normally our, our tradition in the last year, year and a half has been that we would, before we get into the teaching, there would be someone from our church family would come up and give a scripture reading. And this Sunday and next Sunday in particular, uh, because of the specific themes of the text that we're getting into, we want to make sure that we give a little bit of disclaimer to the, the text. Uh, let, me, let me actually just share kind of a, a, a thought on my mind. Um, because disclaimers for the scriptures are, are never to, uh, to say anything like to correct the scripture, but to position our heart to be prepared to receive the scripture. And when I read the text for you today, I, I think you'll understand a little bit of why I'm saying the words I'm, I'm going to say right now. Um, I, I want you to know that as the primary preacher it, uh, at Life Church, I am aware that there are children who engage with us. So there are, there are young people who engage with us in the Word, and uh, I'm aware that most of those children who engage with us in the Word, especially in this season, are online. And so uh, I, I know that, and so I'm conscious as I'm talking that there are little ears who are hearing some of the things that we say from the pulpit. Uh, so I, I want you to know that I wrote this sermon with young people in mind, being aware of them. I didn't write the, this sermon particularly for them. I wrote it for adults to hear, and so I'm going to ask you to use your adult understanding of some specific words. I'm not going to define a couple of words for you, because I'm going to trust that you understand the definitions of words, and parents, if at any point your children asks you, what does that word that Pastor Tim said today mean, uh, if you need help defining some terms in an age-appropriate way, let me know. I would be honored and happy to do that. Um, again, I'm mainly preaching to adults today. We should actually have open discussions about all topics in Scripture, but I also know, again, that there are little ears, and I also am aware that some topics in Scripture are probably better discussed in detail than they are declared in detail from the pulpit. So I'm not actually going to go into some detail on this specific topic today. I do want you to know that this is a safe place for discussion if you have questions, if you have concerns, or if you're struggling with this specific topic that we're going to cover today. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus himself did not go into much detail on the topic we're going to address today uh, in, in the way that we might talk about details and specifics and defining terms. He simply pointed, uh, he simply made the point that he was trying to make, and then he moved forward. Because the point he was trying to make wasn't about topics and details and definitions. The point of the entire Sermon on the Mount is about our hearts, right? So we're going to talk about that today. So with that little bit of a preface, let me, let me maybe under, help you understand why I'm taking the time to preface this by reading today's scripture, and then I've got one more thought before we actually begin. Today's scripture comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. I'll read this to you in the Christian Standard uh, Translation, and it says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, you probably begin to understand why I gave that preface, right? Uh, but, but I want you to understand that when we committed to teach through the Sermon on the Mount, I knew that these words were included in the text. This didn't sneak up on me. This topic wasn't a surprise. Uh, and I knew that it would be difficult to figure out a way to talk about this with mixed audiences. So again, I'm not going to define some terms for you today, but we will have a, an honest, frank, adult-level conversation uh, about this topic. 
because I have a commitment to you as your pastor and the primary preacher and teacher at this church to teach you the full counsel of Scripture, right? Uh, so this is an incredibly important topic, and just because it might be a little bit uncomfortable to discuss uh, and to declare knowing that there might be little ears in the room, and let's be honest, it might even be uncomfortable for our grown-up ears at times, but I want you to know this is an incredibly important issue, one that Jesus does care about, that he is loving and gracious about, not judgmental, and also it's important that we talk about this because sadly there is very little healthy and helpful teaching about this in the modern American church. So we will not shy away from issues just because we don't know how to talk, to that, talk about them with little ears in the room. I think we can do it. And, and I think you'll find that there is a way to have this conversation today, uh, even with our little ones, that will bless all of us. Uh, Jesus, again, does not hide away from addressing any topic directly. And so neither will we. Amen? That said, because I'm aware of the audience that we have, I'm going to present these notes with the same care in delivery that I took in writing them. So if you see me doing a little bit more reading than maybe you're used to today, it's because I want to make sure that we don't uh, go off the rails and say something that I'm going to have to email you about later or receive a phone call about later. It's because I love you. I'm going to do a little bit more reading today. All right? Um, and these are one of the moments that we go, thank God we've launched Life Kids. Right? So, th so they're not covering this text today. Uh, but I do, want, I do want to say one final thing, that even though I am taking that much time to preface this, I stand before you to preach this word with hope and with confidence and with joy. I believe that the word of God sets people free. And so I want to say before we get into this at all today, if you already feel convicted as we talk about the, the theme of this text being adultery and lust, if you already feel convicted the grace of the Lord is for you. No one, no one whose opinion matters is here to judge you. Did you catch that? If you're being judged, their opinion doesn't count. Because Jesus says, through Paul in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? With that said, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the full counsel of the word of God. And we dive into it today with open hearts, open ears, and open minds, and we invite you to convict us where we need to be convicted, to heal us where we need to be healed, and to change our hearts and our desires to be you and your heart and your desires in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So this statement that Jesus makes here in the Sermon on the Mount is actually rooted in the seventh of the Ten Commandments. The seventh of the Ten Commandments you can find uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, where it says simply, do not commit adultery. Uh, this command was also supported in other places in what we call the Old Testament. For example, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, it says, the one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. And just for fun. I like to read this actually in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible that we call the message. He says, adultery is a brainless act, soul-destroying, self-destructive. Here's where it gets good. He says, expect a bloody nose and a black eye and a reputation ruined for good. Like, we could just go home, but... Let's keep moving forward. There, there might actually be some people in the room who maybe you're on the side of, of the scale that you go, this is so obvious, Tim. Like, do we really need to take a whole Sunday to tell people to avoid this issue? And I, I would say, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, just statistically, uh, there, are, there are reports that say that this issue is just as much of an issue, talking about the issues of adultery and then the issues of the heart that Jesus actually digs into, that this is just as much of a problem inside the church. And you could argue if it's a problem at all inside the church, it's more of a problem inside the church if we don't know how to talk about it and if, if we don't know how to get help and healing. So the question that we have to ask is, what is Jesus actually trying to say? So, first we want to understand that Jesus was taking issue with how this teaching had been shared. 
Because that's the whole premise of these six statements that Jesus makes. He says, you've heard that it was said, fill in the blank, but I'm here to tell you, fill in the blank. He's saying, you heard it taught one way, but there's actually something deeper going on here that I want you to understand. So to begin, there was this idea that adultery was only done or only a problem uh, between married people. That if you weren't married, then you could just skip over the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Don't really, it's not a big deal if you're not married, right? Which is, a, which is an absolute disregard of the heart of the matter. And Jesus, in fact, disagreed with that teaching, and so does the author of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is to be honored by all. By all. He doesn't say by all married people, but by all. Implying every human is, is meant to honor marriage. And the marriage bed to be kept undefiled. So, Everyone is expected to honor the intimacy that is reserved for marriage. Now, again, this is a statement that is important that we make, although it's also important that we clarify that we cast no judgment on those who, are, who would stand in disagreement with this. We love you if you don't agree with this. But at Life Church, we hold a traditional Christian biblical ethic on marriage, which means that marriage is a, a union, a covenant before God between one man and one woman. And if you don't agree with that, we don't judge you. I would love to talk with you about that. But this is what we found is we have studied Scripture on this issue. And so Jesus is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, and all throughout Scripture it is saying, that all people are required and expected, both the married and the single person, to honor the intimacy that is designed to be reserved between one man and one wife in the bond of marriage before God. And then also the Pharisees were kind of just teaching that, you know, as long as you don't do the act, just like last week it was saying, you know, do not murder. You've heard that it was said do not murder. It's almost like it's saying just as long as you don't kill somebody. And then in this context, he, the, the Pharisees were actually saying as long as you don't do the act, then you're probably good. Everything else is okay. But Jesus is actually drawing the line further back than just doing the act. Now, the act is clearly against God's plan if you dig into Scripture on this topic, but Jesus is saying that the line is drawn further back than what was being taught, and the issue is not the act, but the desire. Jesus is taking issue with the desires of our heart. So to be clear, Jesus is saying any kind of physical intimacy or the desire for physical intimacy with a person that you are not married to, God calls that sin, the act and the desire. Now, this is an incredibly relevant teaching for 2021. Like, this is not some old school, washed up doctrine. This is insanely relevant for 2021. In the modern world, this sort of teaching is mocked. Biblical purity ethics are considered prude and silly. Uh, we are even called bigoted and closed-minded for this kind of teaching. You, you might revert back to the teaching we did some time ago on being the kinds of people who would expect persecution and disagreement in the world if we stand on biblical ethics and teachings. Uh, our, our modern world doesn't even think that there actually is a line, let alone whether or not it should be drawn further back. For example, in preparing for this message, I read several articles that actually tried to justify infidelity, depending on the circumstances. I, I read an article by a person with a PhD that, in my personal opinion, should be removed from this person, uh, but, uh, but a person with a PhD wrote an article that was published in a public forum that said, depending on the circumstances, infidelity might actually help your marriage. Do you ever just, like, sometimes as a pastor I read stuff and I go, you make my job so much harder. Could you just keep your mouth shut? That was one of those articles. But I, I just want to tell you, again, we cast no judgment on those who disagree. We love every single person. We have a value at Life Church that says we all belong. But at Life Church, we choose willfully and knowingly to agree with the ethics of Jesus on this issue without reserve and without apology, and also without judgment. And by the way, it's possible in 2021 to hold all of those things at the same time. 
But Jesus draws the line, not at the act, but at a look, at the very desire. What is going on in your heart? That's the real issue with Jesus. So Jesus is not saying, let's clarify this. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, if you looked, you might as well do. Because if that was the case, if that was the lesson that we learned from this teaching, then last week we would have said, if you hate a person, you might as well kill them. And so if we can't apply that to murder, we also automatically cannot apply that to this teaching. Correct? All right. So Jesus is not saying that. He's emphasizing the real problem, which is the use of other people's physical bodies to satisfy our own personal and selfish desires. Let me say that again. Jesus is telling us that the issue is the use of another person's body to satisfy your own personal and selfish desire. It was a good sermon, right? I mean, like, don't you feel like just going out to lunch with all your buddies right now? It's like super light. Can't wait to talk about this one at Chipotle later. Uh, The radio personality and theologian Woodrow Kroll said, when adultery walks in, everything worth having walks out. Adultery is dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing because it reduces the human body to a means of personal gratification. I want something. You look like something that I want, so I'm not going to value you as an individual. I'm going to value you as a commodity, as a means to the end of my own personal gratification. It is dehumanizing. It makes the other person an idol for the worship of yourself. Now, Jesus talks about adultery, and he talks about lust. And he says lust is, if you even look at a person lustfully. Oh, by the way, I should have said this at the beginning. This is not a sermon for the men in the room. This is a sermon for the humans in the room. It is statistically proven that women have just as much of an issue with the topic of lust as men do. And we can break that down in categories, right? Any, any act of infidelity, you, you can't blame that just on the man. As they say, it takes two, correct? But also with what we view, statistics are that women have just as much of an addiction rate to issues of Internet usage. Remember, I'm trying to, kids in the room, certain words I'm not going to say today. Women have just statistically just as much of an issue with, with internet usage as men do in our modern world. But again, uh, adultery is dehumanizing and lust is equally problematic because it's not only just dehumanizing, but it is m- most often, if not always, non-consensual. Because it's the use of your imagination to commoditize another person's body without their permission for, the per, for personal gratification, which is idolatry of the self. So you could make an argument that, that uh, idolatry is sinful and lust is actually a form of abuse. Because, I mean, tell the person what you're thinking about them and how are they, are they going to give you permission. Jesus is saying the problem begins with our desires long before it's seen in our actions. But notice how Jesus wants us to respond to this issue. Let's let's turn the corner and get some hope here for a second. There's hope, guys. There's hope. There's actually an action plan that Jesus offers for us. Listen again to what Jesus says in verses 29 through 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, I know this isn't going to sound super hopeful right away, But we'll get there. We're going to get to hope. Hang tight. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Not literally, okay? This is an illustration, all right? No eye patches at church next Sunday, please. (laughs) 
If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then again, another illustration. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The key in Jesus' mind is personal responsibility. And on that note, let's take a brief detour and talk about the ever-enjoyable topic in church culture of modesty. Now, there's been a lot of damage in conversations about modesty and what we would call purity culture in the church. Uh, If you grew up in the age group that I grew up in, in church, and you were a church goer in youth group, you may have been handed a book or several books or been uh, told to read some blogs back when, you know, uh, blog sites were a thing. Uh, And a lot of the language around purity culture was incredibly problematic because it actually reduced the human body to just a means to an end rather than a temple of the living God that is designed for something better, right? And there was a lot of guilt and shame put into purity culture and the conversation of modesty has often not been helpful. But let's clarify for a moment, modesty is not about God's fashion sense. And modesty is not a way to teach us that God does not enjoy the physical intimacy reserved and designed for marriage. God created it, and he wants it to be enjoyed in the appropriate context. But modesty is not God's fashion sense, neither is it the dress code that you must adhere to in order to not get kingdom referrals or to please God. Like I send my girls to a Christian school, and they have a dress code. And I've learned since I was at that Christian school that all the girls, when they wear a skirt or a dress, they have to do the, the, the length test. And if, it doesn't go, if it's higher than the fingers when you put your arms down, then it's, they have a dress code. And God isn't so much interested in setting a strict dress code as he is about the position of our hearts. I should also say that modesty is not about women submitting to masculine standards of purity. This has been an abusive conversation in the church for too long. Modesty is an act of love. It's an act of love for other people. Romans chapter 14, verses 12 through 13 says, Each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide neither to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. So, again, we're not having a conversation about modesty so we can go, Oh, judgment, judgment, ah, you're not being modest, ah, we judge you, ha, ha, ha. But we're also having a conversation about modesty so we can understand while we don't judge one another, we also are not here to put a stumbling block in front of each other. Let, Let me say that in a positive tone. We are here to make sure that we honor one another with our physical presence rather than uh, potentially being a hindrance to one another with our physical presence. And again, men and women alike dress immodestly for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Immodesty, revealing clothing, uh, overly tight clothing, not enough clothing, uh, all of this absolutely invites attention to the physical body. And to place your body as a, potentially, as a potential stumbling block for other people in the same way that you would, uh, that, that, that an open can of beer might be a potential stumbling block for a person who's an alcoholic, a recovering drug addict, if you happen to have some heroin, don't leave it out on the table unattended with your recovering drug addict friends. Not because you've decided that they're a horrible person, but because you love them. It's, this, it's, the same, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's an act of love. Again, there's all kinds of reasons and motives for why we might dress immodestly. Uh, it could just be simply not knowing. It, it could be a, a desire for cultural acceptance. Everyone dresses this way, or this is the way my parents modeled for me to dress. Maybe it's a lack of personal self-esteem that leads to a desire to gain physical attention or to fill some kind of empty place in our heart. Maybe we dress immodestly out of pride in the physical appearance and a desire for praise, which is idolatry, and you become the idol. 
Or maybe we dress immodestly out of a desire to cause other people to think or feel inappropriate things about our physical body. Because the reality is there are and always will be some people who simply want to entice other people to sin because they think it's fun. I'm not saying any of that; those things are true about any of the people in this room or joining us online, but these are the reasons why this might happen. And by the way, again, this just lined up in the text. This isn't one of those like, hi, gotcha, can't wait to finally tell the people of Life Church to start dressing modestly, right? I don't think this is an issue we really have in this church, but it is important that we understand what the scriptures mean. But again, whatever the reason, immodesty actually shows a lack of love, value, and honor, not only for others, but it reveals a lack of love, value, and honor for yourself. To purposely dress to draw inappropriate attention is dehumanizing to yourself, and it's designed to become a source of temptation for others. Again, that doesn't mean that everybody who does this does it purposely. But if you were to do it intentionally, that in itself is a problematic thing. God would go so far as to call that sin. Here's the point about modesty. The way we dress matters. And to willfully dress inappropriately is a lack of love for yourself, for your neighbors, and therefore for God. But along with that point is this point, that modesty is not about rules. Modesty is about willfully positioning and dressing your body with care for yourself, for those around you, and for the worship and honor of God. Modesty is an act of love. Paul put it this way in Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. If your body is positioned or dressed in a way that draws attention to anyone other than God, then you are not using your body as a pure sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to him. That's not something we need you to feel guilt and shame about. It's something that you're invited to think about. Uh, Paul also wrote this to his, his mentee, his disciple named Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who, prof- who profess to worship God. Now, if we pull this into our modern context, we again see that men and women alike very often have the issue of allowing their emotions to dictate the way they behave in church and in in public environments and in private environments, which is why God would say, I want people to pray, lift up holy hands without anger or argument. And then he would say, I also want people to dress in modest clothing. Stop drawing attention to your physical self. Behave in a way that's proper for people who profess to worship God. Let's say it this way. The standard of value for men and women is not in what we wear. It's in how we worship and how we honor one another. After all, didn't Jesus say the greatest commandment is to love God with all of yourself? And then the second is like it, to honor and love your neighbor as yourself. You can see how The way we dress is actually tied up. The way we uh, behave and, and look at other people and treat other people, all of this is tied up together in love. Okay, so having taken that pleasant detour down the road of modesty in church culture, uh, I I want you to understand this, that is extremely important as we talk about modesty. None of what I just said removes responsibility from the person who engages in lustful thoughts or actions. It's important that we understand what modesty is about, but it's also important that we understand that having a conversation about modesty doesn't remove personal responsibility from you, the person living in your body, with your heart. Uh, Throughout church history, men have actually often made the argument that lust is a woman's fault. I just like to stand up in public. This is streaming on the internet and will be recorded for as long as there's an internet. As a man, ladies, I'm sorry. That was a lie and abusive. We need to repent for that. 
Oh, and by the way, if you've never said those words, there's a biblical dynamic. Daniel teaches us to repent for things that we personally didn't do, but like we as an organization or a cohort did. So we as men should humble our hearts and say, God, we repent and heal us of any of the places where we have behaved as if it's a woman's fault for our issues. Women, if this is a problem you have, I, I'm a man, so I know like what it feels like to be a man when it comes to that issue. Ladies, you would equally need to go to the Lord if you would blame somebody else for your sin. But this is an area that I've seen be problematic throughout church history. Men have made the argument that lust is a woman's fault, almost as if other people's clothing choice removed their free will or caused them to sin. That's, that's not logical. That doesn't make any sense. Here's the standard. We should be healthy enough to not sin no matter what environment we're in. That's your personal responsibility. Uh, Rather than being domineering enough to eradicate behaviors that cause us to sin. Just as an aside, like I, I heard... I heard recently, as there's been pastors throughout recent church history in America who have fallen to this exact issue, like recurringly. And, and I hear this, this thread going throughout uh, Christendom where a bunch of men will stand up as if they're saying a helpful thing and they'll go, you know what, I better be careful because that could just be me any day of the week. That could just be me. Thank, if not for the grace of God, there go, really? You're not going to put any personal responsibility on that. I'd rather a man stand up and say, thank God that would never be me because here are all the reasons why. Here's all the work that I've done to know that no matter who's standing in front of me, I can have a pure heart because it's not about who's standing in front of me. It's about who's living inside of me that purifies my heart. We've got to stop blame shifting and we have to take personal responsibility for these issues. The devil made me do it has never been a good excuse. And their attire or their body made me do it does not work on this topic. If you can't handle your thought life and the desires of your heart, that is your problem. And it would be mine. And it's my personal responsibility to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. So Jesus is saying that we need to take personal responsibility. Here's how we can do that. Practice confessing our issues to safe people. We've talked about this a lot recently. We are normalizing the practice of confession here at Life Church. Confession is not something you do on your social media account. It's not something we will ever ask you to do in front of the entire church. We have never and we will never stand a person up in front of the church to confess their sins to you because guess what? It's none of your business. But in safe relationships, safe Relationships means people you can trust will keep your story between you and Jesus and them. And they'll help you. And you don't confess to them just because you feel like you need to tell someone the truth, which you do. You confess to them because you need to tell someone the truth who will help you. That's what a safe person looks like. Uh, By the way, you can also do this. You can work out taking responsibility in this issue by seeking counsel and getting accountability. If addiction in this area is your issue, which is a very real problem in the world, God can deliver you, but you may also need to talk to a counselor. Talk to a Christian counselor who will agree with the deliverance and will help you walk out what it looks like to be delivered. And then, by the way, most importantly, above any of these other things, is that you would dig into, not above, along with all of these other things, as if to say confession is somehow less important. Confession is immensely important, and accountability is immensely important. But, but ultimately, you also want to get to the point where you are digging into God's word. Why? Because it changes our desires. You are responsible to do the work to reframe your own desires which means it's not my job as your pastor. As much as I wish I could just Thanos snap your sin away. (laughs) It's not my job as your pastor to work out your salvation or to change the desire of your heart. I, I, I would love to walk with you in any way that we can. But ultimately we have to understand, like Richard Foster said, Um, he's the author of a book called The Celebration of the Disciplines. He said, sin is ultimately an attempt to to fill our need for God with anything but God. 
we all need God. Sin is the attempt to fill that need with anything but God. But the hope here is that the more we fill our lives with God, the more we will actually weaken the hold of sin on our lives. It's incredible the number of conversations I've had with people who have just confessed struggles in this area, men and women alike, and, and, and the conversations that I've had personally and the ones that I've heard, so many people struggle in this issue, and then, and then when you come down to the question of like, well, what are the things that you're watching? It's almost like culturally we have a complete disconnect that the things that we take in with our eyes actually land in our heart. And so I wonder if you would spend less time watching TV or movies or surfing the internet or going on that one application that keeps getting you stuck in that problem or texting that person that keeps raising problematic feelings in your heart. I wonder if you stopped doing that and spent more time in the word of God, what would actually change? And can I say, I actually don't wonder at all. I know what would change. Your desire would become God's desire. Paul urges us in Galatians 5.16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. James writes in, in James chapter 1 verse 14, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Temptation only works because it plays on offering you a broken version of your desires. What you ultimately desire, what you ultimately need in the deepest core person that God created you to be, what you ultimately need is a relationship with God. And temptation is the thing that the devil used to entice us to a counterfeit version of that. And then it will destroy us in the process. But if you desire God and purity above everything else, then nothing else would be able to draw your attention. So let's look again at Jesus' solution. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Hallelujah. If your, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Again, this is an illustration. The point, the lesson is if you are sinning, it is your responsibility to remove what has caused you to sin or to remove yourself from the environment where you can't help but sinning when you're there. If you're an alcoholic, you know what they're going to tell you in recovery? Stop going to the bar. So Jesus is clear when he locates the problem. By the way, the answer to alcoholics is not burn down all the bars. It's you take responsibility, right? The problem is rooted in ourself, not on somebody else's body. Jesus is super clear about this. And blame shifting promotes shame. And there is no room for shame in God's kingdom. Instead, we take personal responsibility. It leaves room for things like repentance, which simply means to change your mind and your direction. This is not an act of groveling, but of changing course. Not to get God to be happy with you, but because God loves you, he gave you an opportunity to walk a different way. Taking personal responsibility not only leaves room for repentance, but it also gives us grace and forgiveness. You cannot receive grace for sin that you blame somebody else for. And then it gives us room to have radical action to avoid future sin. Jesus offers us a very practical solution. Cut off your access to whatever causes you to sin. If it's a person, stop spending time with them in compromising situations. And fill your thoughts with God's word rather than your own imagination. Because sometimes not being physically with a person doesn't actually help. It doesn't actually just automatically fix the problem. You've got thoughts, fantasies, ideas, a strong imagination, sometimes better than the movies you watch. So stop playing that movie. Fill it with God's word. Right? So if it's a person, stop spending time with that person in compromising situations. If it's a digital resource that is causing you to sin, cut off your access to those sites and applications. And this can be done with digital accountability. For example, I strongly recommend a program called Covenant Eyes. Just for full disclosure, my family, every single device in our family has Covenant Eyes installed. 
Covenant Eyes tracks our digital access. It actually tracks our, our screens. I've recommended Covenant Eyes to people in this church. I know people in this church who are using this program, and I will tell you that this is a godsend to the church in the issue of purity because it restricts our, our it, it, and, and by the way, we shouldn't be afraid of that word. It restricts us from going into a place until our desires no longer would go there if we could. Anyway, if you want to have a conversation about Covenant Eyes, I'll have a conversation. This isn't a paid promotion. I just really am thankful for it in my own family. Uh, by the way, I've got two daughters, and I, I would really like to know what they're seeing on the Internet, not so I can judge them or ground them, but so that I can love them through anything that they see that they really don't need to be seeing at 13 and 11 years old or at any age for that matter. Again, this is not about being strict or about binding rules. It's about finding freedom. So the question that we have to answer is if we want to be free from sin enough to do the work to get free. And let's just add a disclosure here or a disclaimer here towards the end of something that a therapist once told me and I, as I was having a conversation about this very topic. And they said, do you know that if I were to uh, ask in a room of about 100 people uh, men and women alike, all under the age of 60. And I said, how many of you have never uh, had or don't currently have any issues with, the, with, with uh, purity at all? He, he said, I could, I could get a room of 100 people and ask him that question. How many of you don't struggle with purity in any way? And he said, if even one of them raised their hand, I'd just be able to go, you're a liar. It'd be so healthy for the church to normalize a conversation about what healthy purity looks like because the devil can have a field day in the dark if we don't learn how to have this conversation in the light. Right? And by the way, that was just a, a number, the age 60 was just a number that this guy threw out. If you're over 60, you're probably not, you're probably not like free from this conversation. I think the point he was making is like, if you're breathing, right? Yeah. And then the other thing that's important to say as a disclaimer here, as if I haven't said no judgment enough, is that if you're sitting in a room or watching online or you ever have a conversation like this and the thought comes to your mind like, well, thank God I'm not one of those people. Jesus told a story one time to his disciples about a, about a man who came to the prayer wall, uh, two men that came to the prayer wall, and one was standing there going, well, I'm so glad, God, that I'm not like this guy. And there was another guy down on his knees groveling, saying, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, God. And Jesus was honoring the one who came humble and dishonored the one who thought he had it all together. So maybe you genuinely are sitting here thinking, I don't have an issue with purity. Like, this is not my problem. Well, be careful how you carry that because that can become a, a different issue that Jesus also talks about called pride, which is just as much of a sin as the other one because all of them are problematic in God's eyes. So let's be careful in the way we carry this in community. Amen? Which is a good rule of thumb if anyone ever comes to make confession to you that you don't go, <gasps> In fact, my rule of thumb when people confess uh, this issue to me in person and particularly, I will say, well, that sounds like being a human. Let's talk about how we can find our way out of that. Jesus offers freedom. There's not a single person who is too bound to get free by the name and the blood of Jesus if we are willing to make our desires his desires. We can receive freedom if we are willing to draw the line as far back as Jesus does. When Sharon and I were dating, we dated for about four years before we got married. That was primarily because I was 15 when we started dating, and so it was a good idea before we got married that I became a legal adult. But during those four years that we were dating, uh, it was very early on in our relationship that we sat down with our youth pastor, Chad Budlong. He was the youth pastor here at this church uh, when, when we were in high school and when we were dating, and we said, Chad, we want to make sure that our relationship is uh, honoring to the Lord. And we're going to be dating for a long time before we get married, and we intend to get married. 
Uh, and, and it turns out we were right, by the way. Like, I'm one of those guys that actually married his high school sweetheart. Uh, but we said, Chad, we, just, we need help from our youth pastor. to How do we make sure that our, our relationship in our dating years is uh, honoring to the Lord? And so what we did is he got out a, a big yellow <laughs> steno pad piece of paper and a pen, and we wrote out together rules that we created as a couple with our youth pastor helping us for what we would and would not do in our relationship. So uh, we set out, not out of any sense of pressure or guilt or shame, and I'm not telling you that these are things that uh, you need to tell your unmarried friends who are dating that they have to do. This was our choice. Nobody forced us to do this, but we said, uh, we're not going to kiss before we get married. We're, we're not going to be in a house or a room alone uh, together before we get married. Uh, we're not going to uh, drive in a car alone together without somebody knowing where we're going and us having the ability to confirm that we've arrived there without taking a detour out into the desert. It was a long four years. Sharon, I, I can't even begin to explain how good that made me feel that you just said that. Rules were not just for me. <laughs> My favorite part about these rules that we established together as a couple and we signed them uh, at the bottom was that Chad wrote down at the bottom with an asterisk, he said, burn on your wedding night. And we did. <laughs> I mean, we almost set our little guest house on fire, but... Um, we did, we, we did burn that on our wedding night. But I carried that in my wallet for three and a half years. And I remember people asking me about it. You know, it just kind of was one of those things that, like, the word got out. And in high school, people were like, what's the deal with you? <laughs> people still ask me that. But uh, different reasons now. And I remember taking this thing out and, and um, reading it periodically. And I, I remember people asking me to see it. And I remember several people going, that's super weird. I would never do that. And other people going, that's really inspirational. Um, and ultimately, I could care less. Like, I, I, don't, I don't care what other people think about our decision to do that. I, I'll tell you what, that saved us. And the thing that Chad told us that day that I will never forget is he said, God draws the line here. The world will draw the line way somewhere out there. We're not interested in having that conversation. This is where God clearly draws the line. He says, what would it do for your relationship until, between now and when you get married if just to honor the Lord, you didn't draw your line at the same place God draws the line? Because then the problem is if you ever cross God's line, you're in big trouble. He said, what if you drew the line so far back that if you crossed your line, God would look at you and go, all right, we can work on why you crossed your line. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's deal with your heart. But you've come nowhere near the real line. What would it look like if we weren't afraid of what the world thought about us if we actually drew our lines further back? I'm, I, I wonder how much the church would change if we were willing to say, I don't care what the world thinks. I'm going to look like a crazy person so that I can worship God. I, I don't care what the world cares about. I, I'm going to skip that show so that I can have a pure heart before the Lord. I, I don't need to watch that stuff so that I can have a pure heart before. I don't need to know what's going on in that kind of music or in, or in that environment or in that place. I, I don't need to be around those kinds of people so that I can honor the Lord. And I wonder how many of those kinds of people God would send you to as a missionary if you would love them rather than judging them or trying to be like them. It's just a side thought. But our challenge today is that I really can't easily tell you how to respond to a sermon like this without it sounding super judgmental. I, I, I can't tell you, you all need to repent and confess. I, I mean, you, yeah, probably. But again, it's not my job to take responsibility for this for you. What I can do is host a space for you to, in, to, to, to receive an invitation to confess and to repent of any sin that you have, to receive no condemnation, to know that there is no 
life in continued sin. I can, I can offer you an invitation that if you have questions, I welcome all of your questions. And, and we would love, we being the people of Life Church, we would gladly walk with you as you engage God on this issue. It would be our honor to walk with people who want to honor God, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What, can I, what I can offer you right now in this moment is space to pray. In fact, I want to invite you to just close your eyes. And if you're joining us online, I, I, unless you are driving your car right now, I want to invite you to close your eyes. And as you're sitting here or there in the space that you are in, know that God is with you and God loves you and God sees you and he knows more about what is going on in your life and he understands more about it than anyone else and he may even understand more about what's going on in your heart than you do. This is a moment of confession. If there's anything in your heart or in your life that you would say, God, I need to make confession to you now, this is your moment. If you're at home, you're far enough away that probably no one else will hear what you say but God. If you're here on campus, you may not be actually even sitting next to a person that isn't in your household. And if you are, you're wearing a mask so you can whisper these things to the Lord and no one else will hear you. This is a safe moment if you need to make confession before the Lord. And repentance means that you make a commitment to begin to think and live a different way. Ask God for peace and courage to make any confession to other people that you might need to make. God, we live in a world that is full of things that are trying to draw us away from you. We confess that we often choose to love the world more than we love you. We confess that we are not yet perfectly holy as you are holy. We do love you, God. We do love you, and we want to be better at loving you in the ways that we struggle with that, in the ways that we feel like we are not. For any person in this room or watching this online who would say, this is my area of struggle, I would pray freedom and deliverance and peace for you from this bondage in the name of Jesus. And then I would say to you, just like what Jesus said on more than one occasion when he said, go and sin no more. Today he would say, go and do the work to clean up your life. You are loved, but go and do the work. God, we ask that with your love, you would purify our lives, our hearts, and our minds. God, would you walk with us as we create space between ourselves and the things that tempt us. And Life Church, I pray this blessing over you. May your satisfaction with the world fail you as your desire for God increases. May your eyes and your soul be filled with the Word of God. May your life be filled with His Spirit. May you experience the joy and the peace that comes with a pure heart, a pure mind, and a pure body. May you be an example of the true of true and biblical purity. May you be a blessing in the world and may you be blessed in Jesus name.